In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we trust in you and in your goodness and in your, in your mercy. Just pray for your guidance. May you open our hearts and our minds. Would you just all, as we go through this time, may your words flow. And St. Luke, would you pray and intercede for us as we dive into the scriptures from your gospel? We offer all this to you through Jesus Christ's most holy name. Amen. Yeah, I work as a structural engineer, which is kind of funny. So if you out here at the corner of Monument and Webster, there's a building going up there. So that came off of my desk. So if you hit the construction, that's my fault. Sorry, but I get to eat because of it. So thanks. Yeah, with that, I will start with a story for you all. So there were these three friends, Mike, Dave, and Bob. They were all really good friends. They did everything together, spent a lot of time with each other, did fishing trips and hunting trips with each other. And all in all, they just really enjoyed their friendship. The saddest night of any point was when they had to say goodbye at the end of the day and go off their own separate directions. So they were really great friends. Then tragically one night, Mike's house burned and Mike burned in the fire and died. His body was burnt really, really bad. So they ended up needing to have his body ID'd. So they called in the, the friends, Dave and Bob, to come in and ID him. So they had him come in one at a time. They're waiting in the waiting room and they came out and they're like, okay, Bob, we'll take you in first. Are you are you sure you're ready for this? And he goes, yeah, I think so. They're like, okay, just brace yourself. It's pretty bad. So they pull back the cover. He looks at him. He's like, oh, man, I don't know, guys. This is burnt really, really bad. Could you roll him over for me? Yeah, yeah we can do that. So they rolled him over. He's like, oh, nope, it can't be him. I'm like, okay, thanks. So he leaves the room. They go up. And they're like, okay, Dave, we're ready for you if you want to come in and, and take a look. He's like, comes in. He's like, okay, want to make sure that you're you're ready for this because this he's burnt really, really bad. He's like, all right, I think I'm ready. Go ahead. So they pull back the cover, and it's like, gosh, guys, I don't know. He's he's burnt really bad. Could you roll him over for me? Yeah, we can do that. So they roll him over. He's like, nope, can't be Mike. It's not possible. Like, okay, well, thanks for your time. They get them both back out in the waiting room. They're like, so just out of curiosity, you both asked us to roll him over for you to ID him. What? Why were you asking that? And they're like, Oh, well, any time we went with Mike anywhere, people would just look at us and go, hey, look, there goes Mike with those two bleep holes. And that guy only had one. So, anyways, that ties in later. That's why I let off of that. So, uh, yeah, I do do some woodworking projects for a hobby for fun. Um, so this talk will kind of be like that, where I'll probably assemble little pieces here and there, and then at the very end kind of put everything together, and hopefully it, it all makes sense. But, anyways, going into dependence. Dependence... Let's just kind of look at it really, quite frankly, as everyday normal life. So living with one another, um, we're always interacting with each other. Everything that we do is dependent upon each other. And quite frankly, it kind of comes down to pretty much all of the decisions you make, even in the quiet of your own room, is actually affected on your relationships with everybody else. But I will say that the dependent side of this is like supernatural. So like an example, um, I just had the opportunity to go on a mission trip a couple weeks ago down to Mississippi. When I was down there, it was great. We ended up helping out this this elderly woman that was down there. She had fallen through her floor at one point because her floor was so rotted, so we, like, fixed her subfloor. She didn't have running water. We got her running water. Built her a shed outside so that way she could keep some things outside. And while we were there, it was kind of got to be the point where we were starting to get behind on some of this work because we only had about a week to get it done. So there were several of us that stuck around, like, extra time just to help push things along and to get it finished. Which, of course, when they're like, all right, does anybody want to stick around extra time to do this? And you volunteer, just kind of swell the chest moment of just like, yes, I will do this. So we went out there, did it. And what was interesting is that there were a lot of times, there were a lot of decision points where it's kind of like, I, I want to stop this. <laughs> and I want to go home. 
but just the fact that there was somebody that was being dependent on me in that moment was kind of enough to sort of help prod and to push to keep going in deeper and to keep working harder. So there was that. I also think about, I know even for myself, especially when thinking about like judgment day and things like that, it's like if I was just accountable for my own actions, it's almost like I could stand before God and be okay with it. But it's when I start recognizing that other people are affected by my actions that it makes it a little bit more weighty and a little bit more painful to realize. So it's just, it's the natural side of the, the, the dependence is enough to kind of propel us to do things better, especially when we're just like recognizing that people are dependent on us. So to sort of sidetrack from that just a little bit, kind of go into some stories about a few things. So I had this buddy Kent when I was growing up. He was one of my best friends. And there was, there was one time his mom had like a conference that she was going to up in Sandusky, Ohio. So we took off, went over there, and they were at the Kalahari Resort. So we were probably like 12. And she more or less gave us free passes to the park, and we just like took off and went in. We had a great time. It was a lot of fun. And definitely is like, just imagine very young, scrawny guys that are running around trying to hit on high school girls. It was very entertaining. And we were just basically goofing off the whole time, or we would ran in. They had like this game arcade, basically, where it was like a shoot 'em game where you're running around and basically they were just like putting you into a bunch of different rooms. And we were going nuts on this thing and people were, it was fun because people just like started to crowd around as we like started yelling stuff out at each other and having a lot of fun. So we had a blast there. And then one time he like came up after I moved up to Michigan, he like came up to visit me and we went like dirt biking out through all these trails and things like that. And he like at one point like grabbed a root and he's like, oh, I saw this on Bear Grylls. You can just like eat these things. It's fine. I was like, no, it's not. It's just a root that you just pulled out of the ground. It's like, no, it's okay. So we ate it. And then of course I ate it. We both made it okay. It was fine. And then at one point decided that we heard, we thought we heard a waterfall. So we got on our bikes, basically packed up a backpack full of like granola bars and snacks and stuff. I'm like, we're going to go try to find this thing. And then my dad ended up joining us too because he's like, there's not a waterfall out there, guys. It's just sand dunes. So we ended up like taking off and like traversing through all these sand dunes and things like that. And we came out at the end on the backside and found out that we were hearing a waterfall, but it was just water falling on the shores of Lake Michigan. So we basically just like followed our ears all the way through here and went out there and Turns out my mom and sister were on the beach, too. So we, like, showed up, and they were out there. And it's like, oh, hey, let's have a picnic. So we went and grabbed stuff and came back and had a picnic. Anyway, so he was a very close friend of mine. And to tie Mike, Dave, and Bob back into this, there was a quote from C.S. Lewis to kind of illustrate this, this dependence and this interrelation with one another when he's speaking about friendships. I think he's quoting, actually, somebody else. But this is kind of what it says in his, his book on the four loves. He goes, Lamb, Lamb says... Somewhere that if of three friends, A, B, and C, A should die, then B loses not only A, but A's part in C, while C loses not only A, but A's part in B. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. So just on that nature of friendship and dependability, there's a need for us to be dependent on one another solely for the sake of what other people have the ability to call out in us and what we have the ability to call out in them. So this is definitely something that, like, I, I know I've noticed this with myself as well. Because, like, when we were 17, Kent ended up passing away. And it's just really interesting to see that there were, you know, I bring up these, these stories about us just going off and doing goofy things because that was an element of my heart that he brought out really well. And it's funny because, yeah, maybe I go off and I, I go hiking and stuff like that now. But there was a particular way and a particular adventurous nature that he would pull out of myself that only he really could. I mean, his, his favorite quote was, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much room. And 
So he would definitely call me on a lot in that because I'm definitely more of a very well measured on my risk taking. So yeah, that's, that's just like a major element of this dependence on one another, living with each other, and just, just the necessity to have relationship with each other. Something in particular about that too, as far as being subject to authority. So I'm going to jump into Luke here really quickly. This is when Jesus goes missing in the temple and his parents end up finding him. Luke chapter 2, verses 51 and 52, it says, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And then so from this, I'm also jumping into, so this is a commentary that St. Thomas Aquinas put together from the church fathers. Um, This is St. Theophilus says, Not that he became wise by making progress, but that by degrees he revealed his wisdom. As it was when he disputed with the scribes, asking them questions of their law to the astonishment of all who heard him. You see then how he increased in wisdom, in that he became known to many and caused them to wonder, for the showing forth of his wisdom is his increase. But mark how the evangelist, having interpreted what it is to increase in wisdom, adds, and in stature, declaring thereby that an increase or growth in age is an increase in wisdom. So with this dependence and living life with people, there's this nature of this this repetitive coming through, this consistency in being there that helps us grow not only, it helps us grow in virtue with both each other, but then also in God's eyes. So there's a practical nature of this as far as Christ spent 30 years working as a carpenter. Well, however many years once he took over for Joseph, but more or less like 30 years living as a normal person, which is kind of astounding to me because I'm under the age of 30. And then just thinking about Christ spending all of that time, like he's still right now would just be building things for people. And he did that because it was what glorified God the most in that time. And in doing so, he grew in wisdom and stature with both God and man. So there's this goodness as far as like the elevation of our nature and of our spirit in just doing the things that we've committed to and doing them well, doing them to the best of our abilities. The point is, we need people. We need to live in communion with other people. We need that because it it unlocks our hearts, but we also unlock their own. And it's important that we like actually sit with that and let it digest because sometimes reflecting on that thought, I know even for myself, I can have a temptation of one of two ways. One is to push it off and say, no, that's not me. Like, I'm not good enough to do that, which is wrong and that's self-loathing and in and of itself is kind of a prideful sin. But then there's also the way of thinking of ourselves way too high up here. And we should always remember to bring ourselves back to a place of humility and lowliness before the Lord. But again, just to kind of emphasize that like, this nature of dependence is something that's supernatural, or not supernatural. It is very natural. <laughs> it's something that we can actually, in some sense, we can actually obtain this dependence and living it well without, in some sense, without God. Because we can point to a bunch of different, different people that have lived really good lives and done really good things just on their own power and on their own will. But if we want it to be transformative, we need God wholly and entirely in the in the fullness of this, which is kind of what then leads me into independence. So in independence, we have this sometimes wrong idea of it as separating ourselves from everybody else. But in reality, when we speak about independence, it's actually becoming independent from ourselves and becoming more dependent on the person of Christ. It's rejecting our own will and accepting his the main point of, of Scripture, I think, where we see this the most in the person of Christ is 
in the scene in the garden when he is before the Lord and saying, Lord, if it be your will, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And something that's kind of beautiful in this moment, it's his, it's his human nature that he's, he's encountering that is, I mean, his human nature desires to live and to continue living, which is, I mean, what the human body's built to do. We want to live. We want to stay alive. But in that moment, he surrenders that own, that human nature, and then lives for the divine will and his divine nature and says, but not my will be done, but yours. I, I kind of wanted to refer back to this, this commentary again, because there's a beautiful line from Chrysostom in here, this beautiful paragraph where he kind of speaks into this amazement of the incarnation. He says, now every art is set forth by the words and works of him who teacheth, who teaches it, because then our Lord had come to teach no ordinary virtue. Therefore, he speaks and does the same things. And so having it in words, commanded to pray, lest they enter into temptation. He does the same likewise in work, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. He said not the words, if thou wilt, as if ignorant whether it was pleasing to the Father, for such knowledge was not more difficult than the knowledge of his Father's substance, which he alone clearly knew. According to John, as the Father knows me, even so have I known the Father. Nor does he say, as refusing his passion, for he who rebuked a disciple who wished to prevent his passion, so even after many commendations to call him Satan, how should he be unwilling to be crucified? Consider then why it was so said. How great a thing it was to hear that the unspeakable God who passes all understanding was content to enter the virgin's womb, to suck her milk, and to undergo everything human. Since then, that was almost incredible, which was about to happen. He sent first indeed prophets to announce it. Afterwards, he himself comes clothed in the flesh, so that you could not suppose him to be a phantom. He permits his flesh to endure all natural infirmities, to hunger, to thirst, to sleep, to labor, to be afflicted, to be tormented. On this account, likewise, he refuses not death, that he might manifest thereby his true humanity. I kind of wanted to read that just for a moment of, of pause on just recognizing the incredible nature of the incarnation of our Lord and that in becoming human, he experienced all that, that we experience. And if he could so live as to offer that example of surrender and acceptance and a deep wholehearted acceptance of the divine will, we are also called to that. In Isaiah 50, Isaiah 50 is a beautiful passage that we read this on Wednesday of Holy Week. This passage, I think, really kind of gives us a good insight into the disposition of our Lord in the moment of his, of his serious persecution, of his temptation in the garden. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him that was weary. Morning by morning he wakens. He wakens my ear to hear those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ears, and I have not, re I have not been rebellious. I have not turned back. I gave my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who plucked my beard. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been confounded. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. He who will contend with me. Let us stand up together, who is my adversary. Let him come near me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who would declare me guilty? 
Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The mouth will eat them up. In particular, just wanted to focus on that. I have set my face like flint. And I think this is kind of that beautiful moment in the garden, especially when the Lord, when, when Christ is saying, Lord, not my will be done, but yours. There's this deep, firm resolve where he sets his face like flint, which I always thought it was interesting that it explicitly says flint. Why not just stone a rock? But it's interesting because flint itself, you know, I, I think we've all heard about it being used as, as tools back for um, Native Americans and like it has sharp edges, but it's also used to strike fires. And what's interesting is that what happens is when you strike it with steel, it actually like the, the stone is harder than the steel. So it shaves off a piece of the steel and it exposes the iron to the air. And that iron, when it's exposed to the oxygen, is what actually ignites and causes the spark. So I find it very interesting just that he chooses flint mostly for that, that image of, of the spark and of the sharpness of being a tool, of being the arrow and the quiver, really. Also in that verse in Luke, and the angel administering to him, you know, it's kind of funny, I sort of read that, and to me, I, it always kind of struck me as odd. It's just like, he's both human and divine. Does he actually need to be administered to? Like, can he not summon this on, on his own strength? And I think what's beautiful in this moment when he allows the angel to administer to him is he opens up to us of, again, like, it's in our surrender that we actually need the assistance from God to do what we are called to. I mean, he can't, without divine grace and divine assistance, like the passion is not possible. Without his divinity, without his perfection, like it's, it's just not possible. But we're, we're called to lay our lives down as well. And we're called to make this wholehearted surrender that to laying down of, of our lives and accepting of this, of this divine will for our own and to rely on that strength. I also think it's, just as a quick side note, thinking about the angel that was actually chosen to go and administer to him. Like, how do you choose that angel amongst, like, all of them in heaven? It's like, all right, so who wants to go administer to Jesus? And then in my head, every time I think of that, I think of that, if any SpongeBob fans are out there, I always think of that scene from Pretty Patties when he's just like, who's customer number 46,583? And then they just, like, zoom out, and everybody's like, ah! There's just, like, tons of people. I, like, would imagine that as, like, the heavenly hosts in that moment of just, like, who will administer to me? But anyways, so in a practical sense, what does this surrender look like? So I threw out a couple of examples here. One, when you come across sweets, which if any of you are like me and you see a donut and you get super excited and you're just like, yes, I'm eating that donut. But there's two, there's, there's two decision points that we can have in looking at that donut. And the one, which I, I don't choose enough, but I should, is to look at that donut and say, Lord, that is a good thing, but I don't need it. And I'm going to fast from that because it's not good for me. And, you know, I'm choosing your will, and I'm just going to suffer here a little bit and offer this up for somebody. So there's definitely times of repentance where we should, like, actually make that. But then as you find yourself longing for that donut as you're going throughout the rest of your day, because that definitely happens. It's always the donut that got away or the piece of chocolate that was sitting up at the work table that got away. It's good then to kind of, like, remember that and be like, Lord, I've chosen this for you. Thank you for allowing me to suffer here and then continuing on with whatever you're offering for. Or there are also times for celebration, so feast days are also great. So before you just like go and just dive into the sweet that's in front of you, to actually say, all right, Lord, thank you for the gift of this donut. Thank you for the gift of this sweetness and this deliciousness. I'm going to enjoy this now, but I'm going to reflect on your goodness and your sweetness as I do so and kind of bringing yourself into that place. Getting out of bed in the morning. This one I always need because I'm really bad about getting out of bed in the morning. But there can be that moment of 
being frustrated and upset when your alarm first goes off in the morning. She's like, no, I don't want to get up. I really, I just don't want to get up too comfortable. I'm just going to lay here. But really in that moment of, again, setting your face like Flint and actually like gaining that resolve of like, Lord, this is a new day. I thank you for the grace of this new day. I'm getting up for the sake of your glory and then just getting up. Shortcuts at work. I know that sometimes there's a lot of like, you know, I could, at least for myself, it's like I'm sitting there like taking notes all the time and, and doing a bunch of hand calcs, which probably isn't exciting to most people, but I enjoy it. And there's moments where it's like, oh, I could like not actually do this and not record this. But if I have to come back to it later, it's not going to be there. So actually taking those moments when that happens to say, Lord, for the sake of your glory, I'm choosing to do this better and for your goodness. And then again, it's important on this point of dependence to then be offering that for somebody else again, like for, for the intention of like, I've had people of work that have been stressing out about certain things. So it's just like, Lord, for the sake of this person and for what they're doing, I'm going to do this better. It also gives you just like a firmer resolve where you're actually doing the thing again playing on the, the value of goodness and virtue, but then bringing, or of, of doing things well, but bringing the Lord into that so that he can bless it. Setting times of prayer, too. Sometimes it's like, I, I am really busy. I have tons and tons of things going on. All this stuff jumped up that I wasn't expecting to do. But actually just going and saying, no, Lord, I've, I've set this time aside for you. I'm going to make sure that I set this time aside for you, even if it's like actually, like, in some sense, I'm, I'm suffering because I have to like not focus and do all these other things. I promised you I would set this time aside for you, and I'm going to take it and pay attention to that. Or being present in conversations with people. So I know for myself all the time, sometimes there's, especially in like a large crowd of people, there's tons of conversations happening around me, so it's really hard to focus just on talking to one person. Or even a lot of times you like, I saw this all the time in college and I know I was guilty of it, of like there's that person across the room that you really like and you're in the middle of a conversation. So like your eyes are always like all the time, you're like, uh-huh, yeah. And then you're just kind of going here and going and focusing on that, focusing on somebody else and not paying attention to the conversation at hand. But actually, again, taking that moment to say, Lord, I'm here for the sake of this person. I'm paying attention here. Let me listen to what they have to say and just be here with them. That's also setting your face like flint. And the reason why why I bring this up about bringing the Lord into it again. Um, I think it's, sometimes it can be easy to sort of just go back and, I know as I was, I was sort of putting this together, the thing I thought about was actually thinking about some famous people's funerals that have happened in the past. There have been some good people that have done some really good things, and then their funeral kind of comes and goes, and, you know, people are mourning and are sad, but then, you know, maybe there's like things that happen where you just kind of like nicely remember them at some other point in time where something comes up, like, oh, they were the best at this, or, you know, like Elvis Presley being the king, like, oh, he was great. But at some point, it's just kind of lost and forgotten, and all the fruits are just kind of left. Whereas if you look at the lives of the saints, I mean, people go and constantly pray at their tombs. These are people that lived out that wholehearted surrender, that this actually has, like, the ability of their life, even long after they're dead, just the example of that has enough to just pour out this incredible amount of grace into the lives of people and to continue to transform them and to move them. And really in a lot of ways, they just, they just lived out what was in front of them. Well, they just did it well. They cared for the people that were in front of them, but all of that through the eyes and through the lens of Christ. And that's why, especially with that spark of the Flint, I think is really important to remember to make sure that, you know, we set our own faces as Flint so that as Satan beats on us with the steel, as he did with Christ through his hands and his feet and the lance into his side, that spark might happen. And then through the breath of God alone, by his grace, that might blow into a great flame that continues to just spread the depth of that love all throughout the world and those that we encounter and continues to elevate and, again, 
bringing the hearts out of people, right? As, as we're surrendering more to this will of the person of Christ, surrendering more to the depths of his love, that calling on the hearts of other people and bringing out more elements of themselves, more elements of our, of our own hearts. And I think sometimes, you know, when I, when I think about this, it's, it's interesting because if we do this well, we enter into this just perpetual cycle of grace, um, this perpetual cycle of coming before the Lord and surrendering all of ourselves and doing just the practical things with deep and fervent goodness and virtue and the Lord just blessing that and leading more to more transformation in the lives of those that we encounter. And I've always had this temptation that when I start to see that happen, I start to celebrate in it a lot and then just stop. And then I seem to have to like try to kickstart that over and over and over again. Sometimes in those moments, suddenly I start to rely on my own strength for that goodness to start happening and I start focusing on myself. And the reality is if we're continuing to surrender our hearts to the Lord's and surrender into his will, his love has infinite capabilities. His love is, is endless. So if we're actually like continuing to enter into that perpetual cycle of grace, although we're pouring ourselves out more and more, the exhaustion doesn't necessarily set in anymore because now we're dependent upon the Lord's heart and suddenly we start to gain his heart. And then again, look, at, I, I just keep coming back to these things because it just feeds into this perpetual cycle of raising others up and raising ourselves up closer to the person of Christ. And I guess with that, I just kind of want to close this out with the thought of, and just a reminder that we are, we are the universal church. Um, we are people that are called, we are communion people. We're called to communion with one another. We are always linked in the body of Christ to one another. So like, if you can see the goodness that happens when you have that, that small surrender of the moment when you're staring at the donut and like either receiving it or rejecting it with the right intentions, so too can happen also when we choose the wrong and we choose sin and choose to do things less well. It's like, you know, even just in our house, we have chores around our house that we have to get done. And like, there's times where it's like, you know, I could not scrub out this shower and I don't think anybody would know this time around. <laughs> like they cleaned it up the last time. The next guy will come in and get it up. I just, whatever. But actually when, when we make those bad decisions, that actually affects the entire body. That actually like, then when you, you'll find this too, that especially when you make enough of those, those complacent decisions and those when you aren't choosing great things, suddenly when you're like talking and interacting with people, you just like don't have a capacity to care for them. Or like I'll even find it like when I'm doing work, it's like I don't even have the capacity to do work very well anymore. I'm just like frustrated all the time. It's just, I'm not enjoying it. So being being a universal people, being being a communion people, we're called to just constantly remember that these decisions that we make, these interior movements of our heart affect the entirety of the body. The main thing I wanted to emphasize really was just like those those interior movements and the effect that that has on the people that we encounter. So I guess let's just take a few moments here to sort of reflect on that for our own lives. Reflect on just examples where we've seen that, where we've chosen things that have been less good or chosen things that have been more good and just seeing how we can enter into that perpetual cycle of grace. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. God bless and Lord have mercy. How can we compromise between being dependable for others, assuming God desires us to be, and trying not to be enablers of their dependence on someone other than God? This is a great question. Um, I actually, I had a situation with this. I had a, a close friend of mine in college that um, really struggled pretty seriously with depression. And something that he would perpetually end up in this cycle. It was like literally got to a point where I could predict when I would wake up at 1.30 in the morning to texts that were like this long. And he basically just got to a point where he just enjoyed the pain of being in it. 
And so for a long time, I would sit and listen to him as he would like pour all these things out. But it got to a point where I realized like, I am not qualified to help you. So I would actually like stop him a lot of times and be like, you need, you need to see a therapist. You need to get a therapist. You need to get help. And it's like, I, I cannot listen to you because I'm just helping you in this wallowing in your depression and not getting over it. So I think something that's pretty helpful just to kind of recognize sometimes is when we can start seeing, especially like others being like relying on us a little bit more than they should. It's okay to like, in a situation like that, encourage somebody to go see somebody that they need to see. But then also the other side of that too is like, sometimes people just need to go to adoration and go pray. Honestly, just like encourage them to do that. It's like, look, you need to take this to the Lord. This isn't something you need to be relying on me for. Go take this to prayer. Maybe we can talk about it afterwards, but focus on the Lord and like try to listen to him and, and see where he's leading you. So great question. What's your favorite donut? Long John. They chocolate with like, I'm happy with either custard or cream filling. I don't, I don't have a preference, but they're incredible. I also like, if anybody's ever been to Columbus and gone to Buckeye Donuts, <laughs> apple fritters there are incredible. It's like, it's, oh man, the Lord, it's the Lord's gift. So on like a passing comment I made, how's self-loathing prideful? Again, a great question. I'm wholeheartedly a proponent of like all sin is rooted in pride. So, and Father Alex, you can correct me if I'm wrong in any ways in which I try to answer this, but in my mind, so I was someone that really struggled with self-loathing a lot. Um, and the way that I kind of like boiled it down to a pride is I was just obsessed with myself. Everything came down to me thinking about myself. Even if I'm like thinking negatively of myself, all of the world and everything of like my attitude and the way that I interacted with people was all absorbed in Phil. So that's why I would say that self-loathing is prideful because it's all about the person of Christ. And like, again, focusing on him. How do you differentiate when to eat the donut and when not to eat the donut? Another great question. So just keep praying. Um, it's, it's so important. Honestly, like I'll do it a lot of times if it's something where I've been... If I've been indulging a lot on things or just like choosing things for comfort, that's a huge time when I'm like, no donut. But if it's been something where, and I also like, if I'm in a time of struggle, a lot of times it's like, I'm going to resist the donut because I don't want to be dependent upon the goodness of the donut to make me feel better. That's another big time when I resist the donut. Um, or even just like candy, like they put out M&Ms at work all the time. Oh my gosh. It's gotten to the point where when they pour them in the bowl, I can tell whether it's peanut, peanut butter, or regular M&Ms, just by the sound it makes when it hits the bowl. I'm like at a 90% ratio, and the only times I've been wrong have been when I've been in a different room, so it kind of like taints the sound as it comes through the door. But really, it's just kind of like a lot of your own prayer. Again, it's like just something where you're trying not to become dependent upon the things of this world, and you're trying to reject them, when you're like actually in a point where it's like, Lord, now is a good time to celebrate, or somebody's giving me this as a gift. Then it's a good time to eat the donut. What's your take on sharing your faith at work, especially in a STEM field? This is super challenging because I would say, I, I think work relationships are some of the most risky relationships that we possibly have. They, it's like family and then work. Mostly because like my livelihood is dependent upon being able to work with these people. And if they don't like me, there's the large possibility that I lose my job off of this. So I think... I, I guess just to say it's like it's really challenging to like understand how to f how to share your faith at work. But the biggest thing I've noticed is actually just when you're living your life well and joyfully, people really take notice of that. I was I've been astonished at how many people have come up to me, literally like taking time out of their day to like come up, 
knock on my desk and be like, hey, you're really joyful all the time. Why is that? <laughs> like, why are you happy? It's like anytime that things go bad, you're never like crazy upset about it. You're just going with it um, and are accepting it and moving forward with it. And it leads to great conversations. Also, people ask me what I did over the weekend. It's like, oh, I went on a retreat and I encountered Jesus. Let me tell you about him. Do that with some subtlety, obviously. But like, it's definitely, it's challenging because like you end up at a point where it's like, I want to make sure I'm building trust with these people. But at the same time, it's like, I want them to know Jesus so badly. So it's it's an interesting, interesting balance to kind of kind of play with that. So yeah, honestly, living life well. And then when people ask you questions, don't be afraid to let them know. Like everybody at my work knows I go to, well, I shouldn't say everybody, but most people at my work know I go to daily mass every day, and I've had people come up and ask me. It's like, would you please pray for me? So yeah, live it well and answer their questions when they ask. What's your biggest fear? It's kind of twofold. One, I would say like there, there's definitely always a fear of of loneliness, but I think in that, really for myself, like in trying to be the person of Christ, I want to lay my life down for people, and it's like there's just this this fear that I constantly have to work against that nobody's going to let me do that. There's just like been opportunities of rejection that have happened in life where it's like, I'm giving you everything I got and people just say no. And that can be, it's hard. It's like, what in the heck's freaking wrong with me? So that's sometimes like, again, that plays into the self-loathing earlier. So you see, you already see my mental cycle of perpetual. Um, but I think, yeah, anyways, that's kind of it. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm never alone. The Lord's here and it's all enough for him. What has been your biggest challenge in your faith? It's, I guess it's really always been trust for me. There's, there's a lot of times where I'm really, I, I, I grew up in farm country. Like, you get your work done, that's what's expected. And it doesn't matter what in the heck the world throws at you, you better just be able to get stuff done. So I would, you know, as far as relying on your own strength and stuffing stuff down, um, I definitely did that a lot. So I think for myself, the biggest challenge in my faith has actually just been like, trusting in the Lord's goodness and his mercy and just allowing him into my heart and actually letting him do what he's going to do. It's kind of been hard to be vulnerable with him in that and actually seeing, I had spiritual directors for like three years telling me like, you have to see good in yourself. I'm like, what does that mean? But eventually, yes, the Lord, the Lord works. I set my alarm and press snooze for 40 minutes. How do you recommend I kickstart morning, my morning prayer that is non-existent? I've already failed at the penance of open your eyes and thank God for the day. I am with you. I used to be super good about getting up at like five in the morning and then work exploded around this time last year where it was working like 14, 15 hour days pretty consistently. And then like my ability to get out of bed just tanked. So I just hear me out here. I'm totally with you. Swing your feet to the other side of the bed as soon as the alarm goes off. Sit up, get up. I think that's the biggest like way to start and there just has to be that that there and then like as soon as like you get yourself composed sitting up and not letting yourself like let your head hit the pillow again start praying in that moment then and morning prayer is extremely important taking your time to like pray in the morning is honestly there's no better time I found like when I've when I try to pray in the evenings my mind has been so polluted at that point by the end of the day that the only thing I can do is like a prayerful examine examination of conscience but then also like an Ignatius examine which is a good thing but that shouldn't be like the entirety of your personal prayer either. It should be like actually sitting with the Lord, being with him, coming to know him, study him, understand him, and letting him permeate the depths of your heart. It's a good way to like watch how he's been present over the course of the day. But your morning prayer is really a great point where like the day hasn't hit you crazy hard yet and you can actually like let yourself focus. So big encouragement, just swing, this, swing your legs to the other side of the bed, 
sit up, be awake, and don't let yourself hit the snooze button. Did they find the missing man for my story? I mean, the guy was Mike, so yes, I guess, I guess they did. They just couldn't ID him because, yeah. So what are some ways we can practice healthy dependence for those who tend to go it alone or be excessively independent? Do you think some people are lonely but don't realize it? To answer that, yeah. So I'm really glad this question got brought up because I think this is something I actually skipped over that I meant to talk about. I, I'm naturally an introverted person. What I mean is, like, I gain my energy from, like, quiet times and times alone. I love large groups of people, but if there's ever a setting where, like, I have to raise my voice to talk to people, I'm in it for, like, maybe an hour to an hour and 15 minutes, and I'm just zonked. So I know there was there was even, like, a time in my life where I felt like I just needed to – I kind of wanted to be a hermit and just kind of, like, push everybody away because I felt like that's what was better for me. But I found that, like, actually not to be the case, and it's good for me to, like, take some of the quiet time to regain some juice, but then to, like – then go out and spend the time with the people because that's the whole reason for the quiet time in the first place. So for a healthy dependence for those who tend to go about it alone, I would really just encourage you to like, one, if you see somebody that's doing that, to be inviting them into your friend group. That's, that's usually an incredibly helpful thing. Sometimes people just need to be invited. They're not just going to show up. So invite them into it. Bring them into it. Um, that's something else. Like I would encourage you all to read that C.S. Lewis's book on the four loves his, his chapter on friendships definitely the best but that was something he talked about is like the friendship actually like gains something as people come into it so invite people into it to kind of like bring them out of it and even if they like continue to say no and no and no keep keep inviting sometimes we have the tendency to say well i invited them once they don't want to come whatever keep inviting them into it and if you're somebody that's naturally more reserved realize that like there is more out there and to go into it like actually go to social settings and be with people it takes an effort yes but there's always the efforts always rewarded. I even was as I was thinking about this, my brain tends to go to one extreme versus the other, and like even thinking about like hermits, like hermits going on and on and like praying, they're actually like still incredibly linked into like that's a very that's a very particular call, but they are still entirely in that moment linked to the entire body of Christ, and they're still praying and they're still united with the church in that, and that relationship is like explicitly set aside for the person of Christ. So like that that friendship is being that friendship that love that that spousal union is. Is happening there. So yeah, make sure that, that you're entering into communion with people and don't don't be hiding. So okay, so are we already in the Lord's heart when we are born? Also, are we part of the universal church before our baptism? So we're here because the Lord loves us, and then through our baptism we are welcomed into the church and enter into and enter into that. So I'll just kind of kind of generally leave it there, but like everybody has a home within the church and like amongst these groups of people. So thanks for your time and really appreciate all of all of your attention. So